I'm Andy Otto. It's the 7th of October, and this is Thought Press. The vote for the Iraqi Constitution is just days away, and there is still controversy. Of course, President Talibani and President Bush both agree on its significance, and both believe troops shouldn't be pulled yet. We'll take a look at the Constitution in more detail. Doctor-assisted suicide—it's legal in one state, but a case in the Supreme Court is trying to change that. That's a very dangerous message to people who have severe impairments, whether they're terminal or not. Also, the avian flu has got everyone talking and fearful. What's the history, and how would one deal with a global pandemic? Scientists think they may have something. The Red Cross has been a big help as of late, but they're thanking the media. They say without it, disaster relief would be unknown and thousands would die. Finally, it's Ramadan, a holy month for Muslims, but some doctors are saying, "Watch what you eat." We'll have that report and bring everything together next on Thought Press. I'm Andy Otto. On your commute, on demand, wherever you want, this is Thought Press, where we bring things together for you, open your world and your ears to something new. You may access this enhanced program in MP3 format on our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. There you can leave your comments or email us, thoughtpress@gmail.com. Our voice line is also open for your thoughts, 24 hours a day. Just call 206-33 Think, and your thoughts may be heard on this podcast. That number again is 206-338-4465. For those of you who are curious how often this podcast is updated, there is no particular date. However, you'll see it at least once a week. So stay plugged in. Keep us in your aggregator or in iTunes, and each week you'll be able to bring us in the car with you to or from work, wherever you might be. Have something on your mind about ThoughtPress? Email us. It's thoughtpress at gmail dot com, or call our voice line at two zero six three three think. The vote for the Iraqi Constitution is October fifteenth, and it's of sure importance to the stability of Iraq. The vote is coming up soon, and President Talabani says if voters approve the constitution, it will be the next step in strengthening the government and show the country's will to defeat terrorism. Talabani is on his first state visit to Europe since taking office in April. The referendum on the constitution, I hope it will be successful. When we will have constitution, then we have foundation, the source for all laws, and the main law for Iraqi government and authorities, and how to rule the country. This will be the beginning of democratization. And this will help, of course, to、uh, convince Iraqi people that they are enjoying their democratic rights within the constitution. It will help to encourage our people to fight against terrorism in a better way. But it doesn't mean that, and we will never say that constitution will solve all problems. President Talabani says he is opposed to setting a timetable for withdrawal of U.S.-led coalition troops from Iraq, saying it would strengthen the insurgency. Meanwhile, at a recent address in Washington, President Bush continues with that same message. Our goal is to defeat the terrorists and their allies at the heart of their power, and so we will defeat the enemy in Iraq. Jeffrey Young now takes a look in detail at the different points of the Constitution and the causes of some of the controversy surrounding it. Iraq's draft constitution is more than a structure for running a permanent government. It is meant to address past inequities suffered by some of the country's religious and ethnic groups. And it establishes conditions and institutions intended to support national unity. 
The draft was completed nearly two weeks past the August 15th deadline, as delegates struggled for months over how to incorporate points of view that often conflicted. The Arab Sunni community's reluctance to get fully involved made writing the Constitution even more difficult. Analyst Phoebe Marr at the U.S. Institute for Peace in Washington says the basics were accomplished. They did come up with a structure of government for parliament, for a legal system, and for the form of government, and they have a pretty good human rights section as well. But Ms. Marr says that the document also has its shortcomings. They had a lot of trouble in compromising on some key elements. First of all, uh, the whole issue of federalism. There will be federalism, but how is it going to be structured? What are the federal units going to be? And so on. That's still unclear. And the distribution of the oil revenue. These are holes in the Constitution that need to be filled in. The Constitution's writers left many details on how federalism will separate powers between the central and regional governments up to future lawmakers. Regarding oil, the draft constitution is unclear as to whether the demographical distribution of revenues it calls for will be done according to the percentage of the total population each faction, such as the Kurds or Sunnis, represent. In deference to the demands of the Shia community, the draft says Islam is the main source of law. But in deference to secularists, Islam is not defined as the only source of law. While the draft constitution goes on to say that no law can contradict Islamic principles, it also says no law can contradict the principles of democracy. The Jarashamdin, the Iraqi Kurdistan Regional Government Inner Beals representative in Washington, admits the draft constitution is not perfect, but he says its problems can be fixed later by the National Assembly, which will be elected after the constitution is approved. We know that as a result of the compromises, not everything that was in there we would have liked to see, but also the other parties feel the same thing. They all know this is not something carved on stone, that eventually certain things will be amended, will be altered. Some analysts say, however, that since the Shias and Kurds will undoubtedly take the majority of the seats in the next National Assembly, the chances of the Arab Sunni, the Turkmen, and other factions to substantially change the Constitution after its passage are probably limited. The Arab Sunni political party that dominated Iraq for decades, Saddam Hussein's Ba'athists, is banned by the Constitution. Robert Malley, with a non-governmental international crisis group in Washington, says that provision has to be further defined to enable broader Arab Sunni participation in the new government. It is not made clear that one's membership in the Ba'ath Party alone is not a criteria for barring somebody from certain positions, as opposed to the behavior that one had. It should be made clear that it's behavior and not membership that is the criteria for taking action. The draft constitution also prohibits ethnic and religious militias. These militias have been blamed for increasing sectarian strife and are accused of threatening the stability of the central government. Under the constitution up for approval, all security will be in the hands of the military and official state units. The draft also bars the military from getting involved in political disputes. With the draft constitution finished, the focus is now on the yes or no constitutional referendum slated for October 15th. If two-thirds of the voters in three of Iraq's 18 provinces say no, the constitution will fail and will have to be rewritten. But Anthony Cordesman at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington says the content of the constitution itself may not be what will trigger approval or rejection. Many Iraqis are not going to actually read it, 
They're going to vote by religious sect, whether they're Shiite or Sunni, or they're going to vote by how religious or how secular they are. They're going to vote in terms of ethnicity. What they're going to do is see what various leaders and figures say about it. Numerous reports have said that the Arab Sunnis have been told by their leaders to vote no, to force other groups to make broader concessions to them. Some leaders of Iraq's Turkmen have also called on their people to vote no for the same reason. Abbas Medni, a Shia in the United States who is with the Union of Independent Iraqis, says one last attempt at dialogue between factions is needed. It's going to be very dangerous if it's voted down. That will increase the gap between the Shia, the Kurd, and the Sunni. It might lead to division of the country, actually. Before we go to the vote, they need to reach out and talk with each other to avoid this huge political problem. If approved on October 15th, the Constitution sets the stage for elections on December 15th for a new parliament and national leadership, which will hold office for four years. Iraq, most analysts agree, would then have the structures for addressing the needs of both the state and its people, and the legitimacy to join the community of nations. I'm Jeffrey Young. All right, you know about the controversy about euthanasia. In fact, Jack Kevorkian probably comes to mind. But did you know there's a state that allows doctors to prescribe lethal doses of drugs to patients who request it? Oregon is that state, a place where the legality of doctor-assisted suicide is at issue. Since 1997, when Oregon's Death with Dignity Act took effect, 208 people have requested medical help to end their lives. People like Charlene Andrews, who is dying from cancer, says she wants to be next on the list. I know when all of my treatment options have been exhausted. Having the choice gives me comfort. It's just knowing that there's an option, knowing that there's a choice. In 2001, then-Attorney General Ashcroft decided that the use of lethal drugs to help people in Oregon end their lives was a violation of federal drug laws. The Bush administration also argues that assisted suicide is incompatible with a doctor's role as a healer. There's a case before the Supreme Court right now, Gonzalez versus Oregon. It's trying to cut off the state's green light okay for a doctor-assisted suicide. But it's likely to raise the question of whether or not this important life decision is in the hands of the federal government or the state. Murray Williams is on Oregon's side. She's arguing before the Supreme Court. Nowhere did Congress say that they wanted to make that kind of transformation of power from the states regulating medical practice to the U.S. Attorney General regulating medical practice. 
1994, the right to die law in Oregon was passed by a 51% vote. There's lots of debate, and many rights to, right to life groups agree with the Bush administration's efforts to stop doctor-assisted suicides. There's one group called Not Dead Yet that believes the state should not encourage the sick to end their lives. Diane Coleman is part of that group. And instead of discouraging you and telling you how valuable your life is, we're going to agree with you and make sure you don't mess it up. Uh, we're going to give you the means to do it. That's a very dangerous message to people who have severe impairments, whether they're terminal or not. Then there is Compassion and Choices, a national group on the other end of the issue. A fraction of dying patients, even with excellent pain and symptom management, face a dying process that is so prolonged and marked by such extreme deterioration and suffering that for them, having the choice for a peaceful and humane death on their own time, uh, on their own terms, is the least worst alternative. What's interesting is that in 1997, the Supreme Court said it's unconstitutional to allow terminally ill patients to receive doctor-assisted suicide, yet they allowed state to experiment with the issue. That's what's on the table with Oregon, and that decision from the Supreme Court is expected in a few months. The Red Cross, as of late, has been an important part in disaster relief. But their latest study on international disasters says the media are an important part of disaster relief efforts. Thanks to early warning signs during this year's hurricane season, thousands of lives were saved, and this thanks to the media. Bekel Galetta is a director of the International Federation of the Red Cross, and he says we save people's lives by working together, collecting and relaying important information. But with the last year's tsunami in the Indian Ocean region, the lack of early warning systems there contributed to the more than 200,000 deaths. The Red Cross report also says that information post-disaster can help people find shelter, food, or medical treatment. And satellite telephone calls helped reunite hurricane victims. But Peter Cameron, who helped lead the Red Cross's efforts in Indonesia, said better media coverage is needed, especially for lesser-known disasters like the conflict in Sudan's Darfur region and near-famine conditions in West Africa because of drought. And donations? Tons of clothing is piling up in warehouses not being used. The report says better communication is needed to prevent deliveries of goods that are not needed. Well, we've given you a lot of information so far. Do you have any thoughts? Email us. It's thoughtpress at gmail.com. You've probably heard about the avian flu already. You may know it as the bird flu. It causes fever, sore throat, a bad cough, and muscle aches. But it's not just a simple flu. It can cause severe breathing problems and can be fatal. But the biggest fear is a global pandemic passed from birds to humans. In 1997, 18 people in Hong Kong were infected with the H5N1 virus. Six died. That's the virus that's being focused on now. In fact, an international conference on the bird flu is being held, and they're talking about what can be done to prevent a pandemic. 
President Bush is worried about it, and he says he's studying plans for dealing with it. One strategy is first vaccinating poultry, since it's an animal virus that can be transmitted to humans. Another strategy is to limit travel to locations the virus is prevalent. And if a pandemic does break out, President Bush wonders if production of vaccines could be increased. That would be ideal, the ideal solution to slow the spread of the virus, but it would take several months after identifying the virus before a vaccine could be distributed. So the president says the best way is probably to quarantine the pandemic into a particular region. In 1918, the Spanish flu killed millions and circled the globe in record time. Scientists say the 1918 flu is more closely related to bird flus, but adapted to humans. They've decoded the genetic structure of the virus, and this may help us prepare for another pandemic. David McAllary reports. It was the 20th century's greatest plague. Estimates of the 1918 flu death toll range from 20 million to 50 million. More than died in the war that had just preceded it. The head of the U.S. government's disease tracking agency, Julie Gerberding of the Centers for Disease Control, says hardest hit were the young and productive between 20 and 40 years old. The 1918 influenza A virus that caused such global disease spread very rapidly, particularly among healthy people, was very virulent and certainly circled the globe in record time. U.S. government and private scientists have now finished a 10-year project to determine the virus's genetic makeup. They recreated a live virus in a high-security laboratory at the Centers for Disease Control by combining fragments from the organism's eight genes. Researcher Jeffrey Taubenberger of the Armed Forces Pathology Institute says the genetic scraps were gathered from well-preserved lung tissue samples taken from victims during autopsies 87 years ago, or in one case, from a victim exhumed from Alaskan permafrost. Because influenza viruses were not known to exist in 1918, there were no isolates made of this strain of the virus, and so there was actually no way for medical scientists to directly study this influenza virus. The scientists tested the virus by inserting it into mice, chicken embryos, and human lung cells. They found that by substituting genes from other flu viruses, they could make it less lethal. The research, published in the weekly journals Science and Nature, shows that the 1918 flu virus is more closely related to bird flus than it is to human flus. It has several of the same genetic mutations found in the bird flu strain now spreading in Asia. Mutations believed to help the virus replicate more efficiently. Mr. Taubenberger says this reveals that bird flu viruses can cause serious human infection without first combining with a strain already adapted to people. Some experts have said that effective human transmission might require combination with a human flu. We now think that the 1918 virus was an entirely avian-like virus that adapted to humans, and this is a different situation than the last two pandemics we had. The Asian flu in 1957 and the Hong Kong flu in 1968, which were mixtures in which a human-adapted influenza virus acquired two or three new genes from an avian influenza source. So it suggests that pandemics can form in more than one way, and this is a very important point. He says it also suggests that the current Asian bird flu, known by its scientific designation H5N1, could evolve into a human killer with just a few more mutations that allow it to jump more efficiently among people. 
it suggests to us the possibility that these H5 viruses are actually being exposed to some human adaptive pressures and that they might be acquiring some of these same changes in a sense that they might be going down a similar path that ultimately led to 1918. Mr. Taubenberger says if researchers can identify virus components that are important in the process of adapting to humans, they could make a list of molecules to look for in emerging bird flus that threaten people. Dr. Julie Gerberding of the Centers for Disease Control says the work will allow new medical therapies to target those molecules. It's revealing to us some of the secrets that will help us predict and prepare for the next pandemic. Dr. Gerberding says it is comforting to know that the 1918 virus, now that it has been reconstructed, is susceptible to a new vaccine U.S. researchers have developed against bird flu. This means it should work against the bird flu, too, if production can be expanded should a pandemic occur. David McAlary, Washington. If you would like to find out what the stages of a pandemic would be or learn more about the avian flu, go to our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com, and click the link under this podcast posting. We end with Ramadan. It's the ninth month of the Muslim year during which all Muslims fast during daylight hours, but at night they celebrate with lavish feasts. There is, of course, as with everything, a different side to this. Unhealthy eating, not to mention cost of food. Benjamin Sand reports. Ramadan is traditionally a time for introspection. Muslims fast during the day, abstaining not just from food and drink, but from all earthly pleasures in order to focus on the spiritual aspects of their lives. But when the sun goes down, Ramadan becomes a much more festive occasion. Friends and families come together for lavish multi-course meals full of fried foods and rich desserts. Not surprisingly, these nightly feasts, known as iftar, are eagerly anticipated throughout the day. But doctors and government officials here are warning the extensive meals do have a downside. The rush to buy ingredients is driving up prices in food markets across the country. Shoppers at a crowded market in Islamabad say costs are two or three times higher than normal. This woman says salaries can't keep pace with the soaring prices, making life for the average family more difficult during Ramadan. The Pakistani government insists it is doing all it can to keep provisions affordable, and government-run stores are selling basics like rice and sugar below market value. Officials also warn they may take legal action against shopkeepers artificially inflating prices during the holy month. But some health experts say the extra expense may not be such a bad thing. Dr. Adalit Khan says every year he sees fasting Muslims actually gain weight during Ramadan. The doctor says those fancy evening meals can exact a heavy price on public health. Because the food is usually very fatty and contains a lot of sugar, a person can go obese. He says diabetics and people suffering from hypertension are at particular risk during Ramadan. Dr. Khan says Ramadan is about focusing on faith, family and charity. But he says this year it wouldn't hurt if Pakistanis kept an eye on diet as well. Benjamin Sand, Islamabad. I'm Andy Otto, and thanks for listening to Thought Press. You may follow up with links or stories mentioned on this program through our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. If you have suggestions or comments or would like to be heard on Thought Press, 
call us at 20633-THINK or email thoughtpress at gmail.com. Our number again is 206-338-4465. Our audio is hosted by archive.org and select content is provided by Voice of America. Don't forget to visit our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. Thanks.